0: Hi guys, I'm Josh, if we haven't met, um, when you do get a Bible, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis is the very first book in that great Christmas gift that we call the Bible. Um, Tonight, we're going to conclude our series on discovering your identity and calling. And there has been uh, what I think is uh, so much spanning the previous weeks of massive importance, for our particular church, our community, that if you missed one evening here or there, if you'd like to retread something of significance for you personally, the podcast exists for those very reasons. So I'd encourage you to go back if you feel like doing so. Tonight is kind of uh, a bit of an epilogue. We've managed to load a not so insignificant amount of content into these last couple of months. We've talked about your particular wiring and personality, uh, the things that you love, the abilities with which you've been uniquely crafted. We talked about your shadow side, uh, your shortcomings. We talked about your own limitations. We talked about this ancient tool of spiritual formation called the Enneagram. We talked about your work, your, your job, your vocation. We even talked about spiritual formation, the person that you are becoming, for better or for worse, and how the disciple of Jesus sets out to be shaped by the way of Jesus in particular. So tonight, as the teaching side of things arrives at something of a conclusion for now, I want to talk about dreams and about death and about disappointment and about the beautifully ordinary life of discipleship. And we're going to get there by way of the scriptures. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 37 if you don't mind. Genesis 37 verse 1 begins like this. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were, bi- we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Cause and effect. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. It's like the kind of thing that you ordinarily keep to yourself, but apparently he can't help it. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, "What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you?" His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His father kept the matter in mind. Joseph, it seems, is a man of elaborate and meaningful dreams. Now, of course, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, Joseph actually isn't an anomaly. At all the scriptures are replete With dreamers, not just the random fireworks of the hibernating brain. In the Bible, God often gives dreams specifically as a means of communication. And God is creative and strange in that way. He sometimes acts in a cerebral way or a whimsical way rather than in a utilitarian fashion. So sometimes God communicates through dreams of all things. God often takes the scenic route in communication as it were. But notice the dream in this sense becomes something of uh, a double entendre because while in context it's a literal dream, it's a series of thoughts and images and sensations that occur to the mind of a sleeping person, it also becomes an ambition for the future. It is a dream about a dream. And dreams in that secondary sense are something of a cliche for you and I. Most of us I would guess have been steeped in or surrounded by language about dreaming big dreams and dreams coming true and, you know, dreams for the future and uh, all that type of thing for much of our lives, really, and whether or not you prefer the saccharine sentimentality surrounding the language of dreams, many of you, I would guess, have or at least have had dreams of your own. And perhaps yours is a dream for something like romance or an ambitious dream to write the book or finish the album or whatever it might be, a dream to become someone, a dream to uh, accomplish some goal, a dream job. Perhaps yours is a dream to have a family one day, or maybe you have a dream to see the world change for the better, and you have a unique role to play in that change coming to fruition. In all the tangles of who you are and who you are not, there is likely the glimmering seed of a dream, big or small, and it may be obscured by selfish ambition or misdirection or confusion surrounding your identity and calling, but I believe that somewhere in there for each and every one of us is a dream, and that dream is a gift from God who created you in his image. And before you dismiss this, as self helpy you know, feel-good pep-talk spirituality, consider for a moment the practical implications of a dream granted by God. If God has indeed uniquely crafted you in His image, that you might partner with Him in leading the world forward. If God chooses of His own volition to collaborate with His image bearers, rather than, you know, just unilaterally imposing His power all by Himself, if God has work for you to do. All things we've argued throughout the series, then God would, it stands to reason, give you some kind of map for that work. In Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, "For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do." Thus, a God-given dream becomes the map on that quest to do good works. Without it, Without a map, you will languish in ill-fitting busy work as the days on the calendar sort of wilt away with precious little to show for it. Without that map, you might become aimless, or you might wander in circles, or you might do nothing at all. But if you have a map, however broad or ambiguous it may seem at times, you are able to put one foot in front of the other as you walk the long road of discovering your identity and calling. If you're at all familiar with classic hero stories or fantasy fables, or if you've played any given Legend of Zelda video game, you realize a map is not a key. It's not a guarantee of success. Uh, A map is not an all-access pass. It's not a certificate. It's not a promise. It's just a map. Having a map guarantees nothing aside from a proposed way forward, a way that you actually won't be forced to take at all. And so having the map, is often more painful than no map at all because the map acts as a reminder in seasons of listlessness that you are not on the right path. The map reminds us of the journey's awful length and that there are hardships ahead. When the map becomes difficult to read, it infuriates and it often discourages us. And so is the case with dreams. And in this story in Genesis, Joseph acts as this incredible archetype of this paradigm of dreams as a map. So, let's touch down on just a few key moments of Joseph's epic story. We're going to flip around quite a bit, but we'll get through it together. Let's pick up where we left off in Genesis chapter 37 and read beginning in verse 12. It says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams." When Reuben, one of the brothers, heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Don't Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, Reuben said this, to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it, just so you know. "...as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt." Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now just to recap the first development following Joseph's dream, we seem to have taken a tremendous step backward. on the road to Joseph becoming some type of ruler before whom others bow. He's gone from a beloved son of preferential treatment, no less, to the slave of strangers. Uh, Joseph, uh, you'll see, or we would see if we had time to read the entire story, but as the story goes on, he becomes falsely accused of attempting to rape his slaver's wife, and as a result, he gets imprisoned after that. So he's gone from preferred son to slave of strangers to prisoners. So turn over to Genesis chapter 40 and we'll read what happens after that. Genesis 40 beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. These are two fellows with particular jobs in Egypt. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined after he had been falsely accused of sexual assault. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected, so he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in the master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Now, the story goes on for a bit. Joseph listens to their dreams, and he's able to interpret both of them. So skip down to verse 20. It says, Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. Exactly what uh, Joseph predicted would happen. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Awesome for this guy. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph, the guy who interpreted his dream for him. He forgot him. Now, consider for a moment the context in which Joseph interprets dreams and consequently he witnesses them become fulfilled. It's now been years since that original dream that further set enmity between Joseph and his brothers. The meaning of that dream seemed tremendously clear or at least clear enough. And yet not only has it not achieved fulfillment, it seems to regress. As the years go by, he's gone from beloved son to slave to dungeon prisoner. Now he's, an interp- he's interpreting other people's dreams and watching them come to fruition. In fact, this is the prime of this fellow's life. Joseph is spending the prime of his life in slavery, in prison. And here comes this cupbearer fellow whose dream, interpreted by Joseph, goes from dream to fulfillment in what seems to be a matter of days. And the same is true of the baker guy, though I'm sure he's, you know, not happy about that. His was bad news, real bad news, the worst news you can get in a dream, which seems like a rip-off, you know? He's like, we both had dreams. Yours means that you're getting your position back. You're getting impaled. He's like, well, this is the worst dream ever, worst interpretation ever. My worst nightmare. Uh, once my, my dad, who was a very country-type fellow, he told me that his, bi- his worst nightmare was living in a big city, and I was like, really? Because like my nightmares have like severed heads on spider legs that chase me around. <laughs> Your worst nightmare is living in a city. You, you, you haven't had many bad dreams, apparently. I also <laughs> have, this, here's a deviation. I'm going to stand over here to represent the deviation physically. Uh, I have this recurring nightmare. It's true. Ask Abby that uh, it, I wake up and it's Christmas morning and I didn't realize and I've missed the entire Christmas season. Uh, somehow. And I'm like, what's going on? Everyone's like, it's Christmas. I'm like, but we didn't do anything. We didn't have time. They're like, it's fine. Just do stuff now. I'm like, it's not the same. And I have this dream all throughout the year leading up to Christmas, like a half dozen times. It's true for years. Um, And I also have this recurring stress dream. I'm sure you guys have some variation of it. I'm convinced most people do, where uh, like I'm about to teach here and I realize I don't have a teaching, you know, that kind of thing. It's like getting up in class, where's my pants or something like that. And I'm always standing back there and I suddenly realize like, oh, I don't have anything prepared in the whole world. And so in my dream, I'm always trying to figure out what I'm going to do, like just vamp for a half hour or something. (laughs) And once I had a dream, I was back there, and I was like, I don't have anything, there's no teaching at all. So I called a friend of mine who's also a teacher, and I said, hey, I don't have any teaching prepared. This is in my dream. Can you please just text me a teaching, and I'll read it off my phone. And then as I'm talking to him, I realize I hear Christmas music playing, and I'm like, what's going on over there? He's like, it's Christmas morning. You didn't know? I was like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. Anyway. Back to the Bible. That was my ultimate nightmare story. The top's living in a big city, Jeez. So anyway, the story goes on. Turn over to chapter 41 and let's read the very first verse. Genesis 41, 1, it says, <coughs> pardon me, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile and it goes on. So Egypt apparently is dream central. These guys need to open a sleep clinic. They're having all kinds of bizarre dreams all the time. Skip down to verse 8. In the morning, his mind, Pharaoh's mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them. Then the chief cup bearer said to Pharaoh, today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, he interpreted them for us, each, or giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he had interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. <coughs> Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. No one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph said to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So once again, Joseph, empowered by God, interprets a dream, in this case, Pharaoh's dream. And though Joseph's own dream, many painful years later, seems all but hopefully deceased. There are no signs of it coming true whatsoever. But then, suddenly, things begin to change. Skip down to verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Just like that, The dungeon slave becomes a king, a ruler in Egypt. And of course, this is only one dimension of Joseph's dream, which, as you recall, included Joseph's brothers, his family, much to their chagrin. But Joseph's brothers have been absent from his story, from his life, for more than a decade now. Now, as the story goes on, a bit of a regional famine takes place in the land. And we pick up next in chapter 42. So turn over to 42 really quick and look down at verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? (laughs) He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Sounds reasonable. Verse six. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold all grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. So many years after that dream, after so much pain and confusion and languishing in slavery and prison, in doubt, presumably confusion, then one day at work, Unexpected, unannounced, Joseph's brothers are suddenly before him once again. And not only that, but bowing. And in a moment, Joseph remembers that first dream, the seemingly impossible dream suddenly coming to fruition before his eyes so many years later in the midst of what would probably be an otherwise ordinary day. Now, the story carries on with this really interesting bit of torment and confusion that Joseph decides to impose on his brothers without revealing his identity and keeping them in suspense. Um, They're unaware that they'd seen Joseph at all, so his brothers get sent home before returning to Egypt once again in search of food years later. And that's when we read this. So turn over to chapter 43, and let's look down at verse 26. When Joseph came home, They presented to him the gifts they had brought him into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground." What follows is like this complicated family drama before Joseph can no longer bear the secrecy. So turn over one more time, chapter 45, and we'll read the end of the story. Chapter 45, verse 1. Oh, pardon me, that made it louder. I won't try that again. Ordinarily, it's polite to cough into your elbow, but not when there's a microphone there. Chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And that is in brief, the story of Joseph's dream, which as you can see, even from just the major touchdown points, is not a simple story. Now, for those of us who hope to follow that figurative map of a dream given by God, I think there are several things of note from this story for us tonight as we conclude our series on discovering your identity and calling. When unpacking the story in question, a friend of mine uh, meditated on the text, and he mentioned to me four things that he noticed about dreams and their coming to pass. He noticed that for Joseph, the realizing of that fateful dream, the conclusion of the long road was, first, not what he'd expected. Uh, Secondly, it was far more difficult than he imagined, and it was a great many years into the future, but ultimately, it was even better than the first dream, or in the words of my friend himself, he put it this way, it was different and harder and longer, but better. So let's delve a bit into each before we end tonight. Remember, in the story, Joseph's dream is actually quite plain. He sees his brothers bowing down to him in this weird metaphorical sense. He saw himself elevated to some seat of rulership and authority. He did not, however, see Egypt, which is an entirely different country, if you know anything about uh, geography. He did not see himself years and years into the future. His dream conveniently overlooked the scene where he becomes falsely accused of assaulting another man's wife. It left out the part about prison. It left out the part about the dungeon. So it was very different. His dream was something like a pinhole view into a possible future. It was not an exhaustive vision of things to come. And our dreams are often much the same way. They they can be crude, rudimentary sketches of what stands to become an elaborate painting. The realization of the dream is, in the end, a dense novel, but the dream itself is like a brief synopsis. And the details themselves, I would argue, personally, are not necessarily set in stone. God will work with you in light of changing decisions and circumstances to realize the beautiful potential of that crude sketch that He puts in your heart. And when and if you arrive at the completed masterwork, it may indeed look different than anticipated. There will be details not foreseen. And this is important because for even those of us who feel that we have a dream nestled deep within us, that it's clear, that it's unambiguous, that it radiates, it compels us, that dream is not a promise. For evidence of this, simply comb the archive of your mind and reference each and every individual you know who wanders in circles aimlessly with no passion or no drive or no ambition of any kind. Think of every person late in life with no realized dream to speak of. And it isn't that God crafted just them with no unique purpose. It may be that the purpose in question was never entertained or never stewarded properly or never pursued or never realized. And then enter Satan to embellish and compound that wasted potential with his lies. And he begins to say things like, there's actually no purpose for you, it's too late for you, this is all there was for you, and it's a lie. Remember that metaphor previously employed of the map. Uh, To take it a bit further, the dream, that vision, that ambition, that drive in your soul is the map, in theory, to seeing the vision made reality, and there are perhaps several ways to get there, and really no one will force you to take the journey in the first place. That's why the map analogy, I think, is a helpful one, because the map is not a promise, that you will reach the destination. It only shows you the way forward. And similarly, your dream is not an unshakable vision of an inevitable future. It is a guide for life in the present. I would argue that we should expect that when and if we get there, the reality will be quite different than the dream. For some of you, it may be radically different because we tend to romanticize dreams to the degree that they include things like mostly or only the ambition for fame or for wealth or for acclaim or notoriety. We've all been raised on television and social media to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but you won't, just to be clear, and we're slowly learning that fact, and that's okay. Perhaps your dream, to shape the lives of the masses all around the world is really the dream to shape the lives of a couple of small children that you will have one day. And that's good. Perhaps your dream to become an icon of industry is actually the dream to own and faithfully manage a small business, maybe. Or maybe you actually are in the minority of folks whose dreams will be bigger than you anticipated. Maybe you want something small, but your hope to do good for others will lead you all over the world and into something you never thought possible. That could be the case. But either way, it will probably be different. And it will probably be harder. One dimension of the different category is Joseph's inability to foresee the incredible level of ongoing hardship between the moment the dream takes root to the day it is brought to completion. And when we often romanticize dreams, when we make them bigger and more grandiose, we often omit the possibility of hardship. And I'm not talking about, like, hard work. You know, we romanticize hard work, too. I'm talking about soul-crushing, I want to quit, devastation, disappointment, this isn't worth it, who am I, hardship. When your dream is to become a ruler, and what immediately happens thereafter is that you become a slave and then a prisoner. That's hardship, because no one dreams about the bad stuff. Intellectually, you may realize that not unlike the journey of life itself, the journey of your dream may be fraught with suffering. You get that, but it doesn't exactly show up on the map. You have to find it on the way. And so we find it more difficult than we had anticipated, and it takes longer than we had anticipated as well. From the moment the dream is revealed, in this particular narrative, to the moment the contents of the dream are realized in Joseph's life, there are 22 chapters of Genesis and more than two decades of life that happen in between. The dream occurs to Joseph as a teenager. The text says he was 17 years old, but he's 30 when he becomes a ruler in Egypt, and another nine years elapse before the dream comes to pass in full. That's a really long time if you're counting in the way of life years. It's a long time. A dream, not unlike a child actually, gestates. So there is a moment of conception and and then a lot happens (laughs) before that child can be born. The trouble is, the conception of a dream immediately stirs our minds and our souls with a vision for what it will be like when the dream gets born and what it will be like when the dream grows up and what it will be, be like when the dream is thriving as a healthy adult. But that takes years, it takes decades of life to get there. And whatever the wait, it's most often longer than we anticipate. So think back to something we read at the beginning of Genesis 41 that really bummed me out about this passage. The author just casually writes, when two years had passed, and in context, that's two years of Joseph sitting in a dungeon, you know? And, And from what we can tell in the text, the author mentions years of sitting in prison, with just those words. After two years has passed, he doesn't document any voice from God, or there's no mentioned prophecy from the Spirit, hang in there. It just seems like prison for years. And of course, we learn by the story's conclusion that God was absolutely involved in an ongoing level. But how difficult that must have been to see when you're just sitting in prison for years because though the season of prison does come to an end, the dream itself isn't brought to fruition for many, many years after that. And of course, not all dreams are from God in the first place. I think that bears repeating. It seems to me that many are, of course, and that I believe everyone is given at least one dream, what we would describe as a dream, from their Father in heaven. And it may not be to change the world or to become a celebrity. It may be the dream to have a family or to learn a trade or to excel at a craft, something very small, something very humble and ordinary. The truth about dreams is that they're mostly less grandiose than we've all been led to believe. By and large, they are more simple, more profoundly ordinary. The truth is that, in reality, you're you're probably not as special as you've been led to believe. Um, I'm not. To be very clear, someone out there is absolutely better at you than any given thing, even the thing that you're wonderful at, guaranteed, and that's okay. You are in all likelihood uh, not changing the world in this elaborate fashion that you were promised, and that's okay as well. When your expectations are actually adjusted and when you discover your identity and calling, what you can do and what you cannot do, you will likely find in all that, The small but precious gem of a dream tethered to who you are, who God has made you to be. And it may be big or it may be very small, but like your identity and your calling, it is a gift from God. You don't make it up. God gives it to you. And consequently, though it may be more difficult, though it may take longer and with more hardship than expected, in the end, it will also be better. Consider the framing of Joseph's dream from the outset. It dealt largely in the beginning with the glory and notoriety of Joseph himself, and he bragged about it. You know, the, you the reader can't help but sympathize with Joseph's brothers when you read the story. He sounds like a jerk. He sounds like an arrogant jerk. And interestingly, the dream isn't actually entirely mistaken, it's accurate. But the Joseph of the realized dream is so different than the teenager who brags to his older brothers about a day when they might bow down before him. Of course, it's easy to see why. Joseph's pride is repeatedly stripped from him for two decades. And the dream holds up. It's actually the same dream in the end, in a sense, but the egotism and the self obsession burn away. Joseph grows, he matures. He's humbled, and his fulfilled dream is wrapped up in the story of not just the fact that people bow down to him or that he becomes a ruler. It's about a redeemed family. It's about lives being saved. It's about actually entire nations being saved. It's about evil being subverted for good. It's about so much more than simply someone bowing down to someone else. It's better, much better. Earlier, I mentioned the flexible nature of our dreams and of the future. There are times when a dream is born prematurely and to disastrous ends. Because caring for a realized dream requires humility. It requires mature stewardship. And when the dream gets born prematurely, the dreamer can actually wreck it. And one reason is that it's so easy for us to give in to the idolatry of the dream. When we think on any level, if I could just have whatever that thing is, Then I would be where I want to be. The dream, good or bad, becomes an idol in the language of the scriptures. So for the disciple of Jesus, the unique difference between the person who follows Rabbi Jesus, who is of the family of God, and everyone else is that we've come to believe that only God can satisfy Only God can fulfill the deep-seated longing of the soul that every human being has nestled deep within them to know and be known, this squirming, flailing about to be seen and to be heard, our agonizing ache to feel meaning and significance in the world, the human condition in a nutshell. And there's a trick to it in the scriptures, a secret known to those who have, in the language of Jesus, discovered the treasure hidden in a field, so to speak. Paul called it the secret to being content in any and every situation. And that secret is the satisfaction of being known and loved and adopted by God the Father with or without a dream, with or without a fulfilled dream. And there have been, honestly, many seasons of my life personally in which I have longed more desperately for the dream than I have for God. And strangely, there have even been times when God has granted the dream or elements of the dream or circumstantially they've come to pass nonetheless, and it became a painful, troublesome thing because I did not have the maturity or the stewardship to navigate the fulfillment of the dream. In other seasons, the dream itself, because of my negligence, crumbled. Before me, And I don't believe that everything that happens is controlled or ordained by God, but I absolutely believe that He is actively involved in our lives. I think that there are times when God may work to take a dream away just so we can see Him more clearly. There are times when the mercy of God is to allow a dream to collapse in death so that our hearts will be set free from the idolatry of the dream. And maybe the dream gets resurrected later down the road, or maybe a new dream will come along and take its place. But we must learn to follow the map, content in God, with or without the dream coming to pass. And if it does, I believe it will be better than we expect. So tonight, as we conclude our series on discovering your identity and calling, um, you'll actually have until January to finish the practices in your community. I know most of us have kind of got... Uh, off schedule because the holidays and everything, it's totally fine. Take your time. You'll have until the new year. My humble request for you this evening as we wrap up the teaching side of things is this. For each and every one of you, peer into the complicated tangles of your soul and find the dream. Big or small or glamorous or quite ordinary, I realize that Probably a significant amount of you go, I know what it is. It's already there. I've had it for as long as I can remember. Maybe others of you are like, I thought I had something and now I don't have any idea what it might be. Maybe others still are like, I feel like the weirdo that never knew what that dream was. My invitation to you is, with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, look inside to find what that dream might be and then wipe away from its surface any trace of the American dream. Do not dream for more money Do not dream for more comfort. Do not dream about more security or a bigger house or more stuff. In fact, reject the American dream. Put it to death forever. And instead, allow God's spirit to forge in you something much, much better. And then hold on to it tightly and turn it over lovingly. Examine it from all sides. And then become prepared to stand strong in the face of change when things are not what we expected them to be because it will be different. Press on in the face of mounting hardship when it's more difficult than we had anticipated. Endure in the passing drag of time when it takes much longer than you thought and continue to journey on into the better that God has for you. With that in mind, let me pray. And let's just take a couple of minutes to sit and listen to God's spirit about this particular thing.